equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the Independent Politics and Media Podcast. I'm your host. I have a name, but um, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Jenny. Welcome, welcome back, Jenny. It's been a little while. Yeah, thanks for having me on again to say things. I love it. Fantastic. We're off to a flying start. Um, <laughs> uh, it's usually much better than this, Nicole. Uh, thank you for joining us. No worries at all. Happy to be here. Uh, do you want to give a, a quick intro uh, as to, I, I guess, what you do, um, how you're positioned in uh, New Zealand politics and civil society. Um, I'm an activist and a campaigner and a public relations person. So I, at the moment, I'm the um, director of communications for the disinformation project. But I have other um, kind of projects that I do, and I kind of love crisis comms and political campaigning. That's probably my yeah slightly sick love. <laughs> Look, we've all we've all got one, and we need some people who love things like that, uh, as long as they're not trying to create them to feed their their passion. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening. Um, and I guess that's kind of intro to what we're going to be talking about as well, which is the, uh, the increasing instances over the last few years in social media, um, in New Zealand in particular, uh, where there seemed to be a little bit of a lag uh, with some of the I guess we'll say far right or conspiratorial or reactionary right wing, uh, social media botting and sock puppeting uh, and coordinated campaigns. It's been happening everywhere for a long time, but we really only saw this ramp up uh, to a large extent last year as, as when I started to see some inflection points uh, with a lot more accounts showing up uh, in Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram, not so much in Blue Sky yet. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit uh, less rough uh, over there. Where this kind of stuff is, has come from, uh, what drives it, what they're trying to do, and what people in, in left-wing comms or, I guess, institutional roles can do about it. Uh, I have no answers, so I'm hoping the two of you do. I'm, I'm lying. I have lots of answers, uh, but they're not very interesting and you've heard them on Twitter. Nicole, you've been right alongside this, you know, as an activist, um, as someone who has worked in institutions that are either encountering this, encountering this directly because of their work or because of their research. Did you also see this as a shift in the last couple of years or were you seeing enough of it already that it was more just that more people were paying attention to it? I think it has grown in terms of the public awareness of it in the last kind of year. As you say, it's become more kind of obvious and, and kind of everywhere, but it's a it's been growing since COVID. And even before that, I think New Zealand definitely had some communities that were formed around disinformation, especially kind of health disinformation in that anti-vax, anti-measles, MMRI kind of space. Um, but I think the for various reasons, some of them are pretty well documented now, but um, others are still kind of emerging as reasons that the COVID pandemic just brought it to the fore for people. And then for me personally, I think when Elon <laughs> bought Twitter, 
and sort of rolled back a lot of the moderation tools and systems there that had kept that a relatively safe place, uh, it became really evident what was behind that curtain for Joe Public, I think. Jenny, you've also experienced some of the ways in which this has has been built up and um, I guess developed. I, I don't know, are these the right words to describe uh, the way that this has ended up being coordinated? Um, I would say developed because I think a common misconception that I think um, people that are not exposed to this kind of stuff have is that they think it's just like a random collection of people just happen to share the same views and amplify it, but it's actually quite organised. Like people genuinely get together and go, I'm going to spread some vile, hateful shit online and you should all help me do it. And then a bunch of people in like a dark room somewhere go, that's a great idea. We'll just all spread this shit together. Like there, there's always been a concerted effort, I think, to, to spread hate. And I really feel like it's doing this sort of stuff a disservice when you go, oh, it's just people that have been disenfranchised or whatever, just people like alone in their rooms being mad at the world when there are real organized efforts And I don't want to draw like a direct line from this sort of stuff all the way through to harassment campaigns from like 4chan or Gamergate and stuff like that. But like those were always very targeted, very coordinated harassment campaigns. And that kind of strategy and tactic has carried on and has kind of think kind of exploded over the rise. Sorry, as Chloe said, during COVID. And one thing we've noticed, at least, um, I think from like a market research perspective, which I know sounds so wanky to say, but like there's been a definite there's been a definite rise in sort of um people identifying really, really strongly with like sub communities above all else. And I feel like as people became more physically isolated during COVID, they were like, Who will I turn to? I can't touch any grass. What am I gonna do all day? And then you get this endless stream of people that reinforce shitty views with zero fact checking. Um, and also the rise of like distrust in mainstream media. No one believes in like Wikipedia or, like, or academic sources anymore. Everyone's like, everyone's lying to me. Wikipedia is fake. The news is terrible. Like the border's making the frogs gay. And people will amplify and believe in those things and push them out in a very coordinated way. And whether or not it's people that know that it's bullshit and just want to stir the pot or people that genuinely believe that stuff in like a tinfoil way, I think that kind of stuff is irrelevant. The motivation is irrelevant. The reality is that people use coordinated tactics to harass people on, I would say, it's going to sound really weird, but like, it's definitely like, I feel like a right to left shift. Like, I think people that are conservative, there's been a prominence of conservative groups engaging in this sort of behavior against people that disagree with their particular type of rhetoric. I don't want to call it like a right-left thing immediately, but I think we can notice that online and we have seen that sort of during Elon's Twitter's renaissance that this is happening. So essentially, yeah, terrible. I see sort of like the same strategy that I used to encounter when I experienced and was sort of like coming up alongside Gamergate, not part of it, just to clarify. <laughs> I'm not like... Not one of those people in the dark room. Not rooms. one of those people in the dark room harassing women online. Um, but I think that the things that you saw there, people would, you know, we've, we've moved on from like, oh, people on a forum going, oh, we should all group up and harass example at Coley at, on Twitter.com. People are now organizing openly in Twitter replies. People are organizing in open spaces, in Facebook, online, in person, and they feel empowered to carry out these disinformation campaigns. And that I think is the most worrying part is that before it was like, a, oh, people in a dark room doing neckbeard stuff, not anymore. 
like there's like a new face of disinformation and it looks far more i hate to say this word but it looks far more stylish and far more like mainstream acceptable and that's why i think it's sort of become to prominence recently because it's now no longer uncool to be a dickhead like people think it's like cool and chill to be an asshole online and to harass people and to spread misinformation these movements have a new face and it's much more traditionally attractive than the old one Yeah, I completely agree. I think you can draw a straight line between targeted harassment campaigns and overt organizing in order to pile on people. To use a global example, the sort of Matt Walsh make pride toxic approach is something that was overtly discussed, organized, you know, on podcasts, in the open, on social media, that their strategy was if you were a brand and you were supporting pride, they were going to organize their followers to give you so much flack that it was just untenable, either not safe for your staff on the front lines in places like Target or wherever in the States where they're doing pride displays or the people that are responsible for checking social medias and getting all of those threats and stuff like that just to make the idea of doing anything that was overtly supporting pride, particularly trans rights and affirmation to be just a huge undertaking that even the largest of brands starts to sort of wobble staring down the barrel at, you know, um, and that's really evident in New Zealand in terms of shared tactics around organising, shared tactics around who gets targeted. So we see Pride and Pride events getting targeted and brands that are doing kind of affirming and rainbow friendly policies and being loud and proud about those on social media get targeted. Um, our biggest consumer telecommunications organization, Spark, was targeted, you know, with the boycott campaign, which I always find really funny because I don't understand how you boycott <laughs> one of two really um, meaningful sort of uh, phone companies in New Zealand. It's not as if we have a huge amount of, of choice, but um, that was lifted straight out of that US conservative playbook around targeting. And you've seen similar actions being taken against places like libraries, right? And other civil institutions. And as you say, it's in the case of Spark, you know, it might not be realistic in terms of the threat uh, that they're making, like we're all going to leave and, and being able to push them to take action based on that. But that's not the main issue. It's to create this idea that there is a boycott uh, while ramping up commenting, um, ramping up emails to people within the company um, and creating a perception uh, that there's this really loud, angry... I think they aim to to make it seem like they're a majority and, and whether or not that's ever the case and mostly it isn't and put pressure on uh, companies and um, but particularly on leadership of those companies. You know, it's... It, become the the focus can become very narrow because you only need to flip really one or two people um, yeah and i think you know the threat in the new zealand landscape is interesting because with the spark example there were absolutely named staff members that were doxxed and targeted and their family members their spouses and stuff like that had their personal information shared online but 
I don't think that the goal is for Spark to suddenly be like, do you know what? We've decided that we don't support rainbow initiatives. Mm-hmm. It's that when they're looking at their content planning for the year and their resource allocation, they just suddenly stop doing any uh, controversial topics. And that is exactly what these groups want. And so when we talk about what left-wing communicators and progressive public relations people or, you know, people that are doing engagement for their organisations, that's the kind of key takeaway that I say is like, just keep talking, just keep doing, you know, if your values are about diversity or your values are about inclusion and accessibility and stuff, keep doing that and just start to expect that you're going to get some flack for it, plan for that, uh, but do not back down. At a very cynical level as well, it's about reducing the stuff to an economic argument, right? Like we can't afford to do this because we do not have the resource to be responding to, um, to be protecting our staff, to be putting people in safe houses. I, I don't know if that's something that needs to happen in New Zealand really, but it's definitely something that's happened in the US, right? They've had to like relocate people or um, send people to different hotels and the like. Uh, there is a financial cost to that as well. And that's all understood by the people who are uh, undertaking these kind of campaigns. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that the kind of pushback from organisations that have for years benefited from being perceived to be diverse and inclusive has to be that when they get pulled up on those values, they stand firm in them. Um, I don't... the. The one thing I would say is that the flavour of global disinformation and kind of Aotearoa New Zealand disinformation both lines up and doesn't. So there are some ways that the kind of trans, anti-trans rhetoric is something that New Zealand is definitely in lockstep with the UK and the US in terms of. But we also have our own unique flavours of disinformation, which at the moment we're seeing around Māori sovereignty and the treaty and things like that. Um, So, I mean, that's not to say that they don't have anti-Indigenous disinformation in other countries. Look at what happened with The Voice in Australia. But um, New Zealand both kind of has our own unique flavours and also some sort of carbon copies of global. Yeah, the uh, anti-Indigenous stuff here as well, you can see very clear links in regards to the communication strategies that they employ here. You know, and, the, and these are just the kind of things that become dead giveaways that there's a coordinated effort here. It's not just a whole bunch of people who are who are being racist together. There was some really, I'm going to, oh, this is the kind of thing where we, you get into the details and you start describing it as interesting and you're just like, oh, but I'm not a piece of shit. But it was interesting to make the connection between some of the anti-gang rhetoric coming out last year um, as we uh, moved towards the election campaign um, and the Islamophobic uh, rhetoric that you see in places like the UK about, um, and like just now recently in in the US around the Islamification of towns. And they would just be like, oh, these are gang towns, they've been gangified, you know, like using exactly the same kind of comms patterns uh, but using the gang's moniker to tie that to Māori. And then through that, with co-governance, uh, talking about the Māorification of New Zealand. And you're just like, wow, what the fuck is happening here and why is no one talking about it? I've seen this happening over the last 10 years. Well, no, even longer than that because so much time has passed since the Iraq war now. Um, but you know, this is stuff that's, there's a playbook for it and it is being employed. And you can see that across different issues as well. So the same playbook that was deployed against 
gay, mostly gay men in the 90s was that they were pedophiles, that they were Mm -hmm. grooming children, that they were backed by a shadowy group of elites in the arts and media, and that ultimately, you know, affirming gay rights or rolling back legislation that was homophobic would be ushering in a deviant undertone to society that would be ultimately dangerous for children and families. And we see those exact talking points being deployed against trans people, primarily trans women. And I think possibly these groups just think that we don't have particularly long memories, (laughs) but I remember, you know, in the kind of lead up to the civil union bill passing 1,000 years ago, the Maxim Institute, which was a conservative-backed, quote-unquote, research group um, from kind of, I guess, private corporations that held personally quite conservative views would put money into this think tank. This is while Um, Greg Fleming was the CEO, right? Very much so, yeah. And all sorts of like pumpkin patch and some of the McDonald's franchisees, if I remember correctly, were sort of the funders and the stakeholders. They paid for advertising in all of the daily newspapers, full page sort of publications of, as a, again, I'm saying research and <laughs> scare quotes here, that linked homosexuality to pedophilia in the weeks before the bill was due to have its final reading in Parliament. And, you know, that presented itself as being hard science, as being well-researched, well-laid out, you know, and put in people's mailboxes. And that absolutely is disinformation. We know that now to be false. But that same kind of tactic of, like, uh, you know, dominating people's views with paid advertisements and clickbait and stuff like that, uh, having pseudoscientific talking points is, again, something from that playbook that we see happening now. I think one of the major shifts that I've noticed over the last couple of years, being someone who's horribly immersed in this space, is... You know, you've always had these large organisations, whether they're political parties or think tanks or mega churches or serial companies uh, or whichever who've done this kind of thing, right? And and we have a really long history of uh, horrible little astroturf uh, organisations here who've been doing this for ages, like putting full-page advertisements in with, with outright lies and getting this dis- disinformation out. That, that chronology has been there for a long time and that, as you say, that playbook has been well-trodden. And that pipeline from uh, vested interests, uh, often very well-funded ones, uh, to the public has always existed as well, you know, for 100 years. But where it's shifted is with the advent of social media and some of the opening up of that. And I guess the realization of those same interests that they can harness, I'm going to use scare quotes now to say normal people, to kind of act as their foot soldiers and be far more personalized in their approach around this stuff in a way that, you know, seeing a full-page advert in the New Zealand Herald, like, you just put that in the fireplace, right? Like, you you can ignore that uh, in a way that many people can't ignore someone popping onto their Facebook comment um, or into a Twitter thread that they've done or, you know, directly emailing them. And I think that's the stuff that has come out of, um, you know, 4chan and and Gamergate that you were uh, talking about, Jenny, where bo- both of these things have existed, right? Horrible groups of people uh, with horrible ideas who are very hateful and the people who have a lot of money and want to 
make those horrible ideas and hateful things policy. How do you think that connection, uh, and this is for you, Jenny, how do you think that connection was made between those two things? If if it's possible to oh, well, draw a thread. Um, I'm going to talk about Reddit very briefly, which I know is going to make some people just like decide to stop listening to the podcast. <laughs> Reddit is like what Reddit is. Um, but just maybe like six or so months ago, there were a bunch of posts on, and this is geographically specific, on slash r slash Auckland about crimes uh, against racial minorities. Um, and by minorities, I mean every race minority apart from the indigenous people of Aotearoa. So there are a bunch of posts made by people saying they were assaulted in Auckland Central or in some other part of New Zealand. And they would post these like fake photos of themselves having been in a punch up. And some people figured out on slash r slash Auckland that these were just like reposted images from someone that was actually assaulted in London a couple of years ago. And people were just spreading these fake images around attached to their own personal posts about how they were assaulted by someone who in the comments and when the comments were like, oh, this person that assaulted me was Maori. Like no one fact checked that. People just went, oh, that's awful. So sad to see that like you're having violence visited upon you by someone who is Maori. Obviously, like, if you had half a brain cell, you'd be like, this is insanity. There's no way this stuff is true. But, like, the subreddit really sort of was captivated by this for a while. Like, people really believed that there were, like, Indigenous people carrying out hate crimes against other races that were living in Aotearoa, which, again, just mental, just completely mental, right? But I noticed a pattern, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one as well. There are people that actually posted about this on slash r slash Auckland at the time that a bunch of the commentators in these individual threads about assault or crime or whatever else people were implying, they will all comment, all their comments were on other similar posts. And they were all saying the same inflammatory stuff about Indigenous people, like copy paste of word for word. And so that to me, obviously, that's no coincidence. Like these people have all unrelated usernames, like they're all just either like gay sorry they're either like transphobic jokes or like homophobic jokes or like racist jokes in their usernames or whatever and they're all saying the same stuff on different posts and these comments some of these accounts are still live today and obviously in the comments their discourse has now moved on so they've moved on from saying oh we hate Maori people and now they're like oh Palestine you know they're like oh this awful thing happening in Palestine or happening in Israel like, so these people, if you follow the comment threads, and there are thousands of them, they're all alive right now in the slash r slash Auckland subreddit. If you go to any of these deleted posts that are like mostly tagged hashtag rant or something, you'll see a bunch of users who are still active who comment only on what's like the flavor of the day, basically, um, in New Zealand's consciousness. And it's always the exact same inflammatory stuff, like no difference in the words whatsoever. So to me, this is obviously coordinated astroturfing. There's no two ways about it. There's no way that like 12 to 25 people will have the exact same wording in their comments in the exact same threads on the exact same subreddit. Like that is, that's just too much. It's not a coincidence. And what I would say is in terms of the connection, if I'm an evil communications company, (laughs) (laughs) which we're not i want to be we're not that i'm not and evil communications company limited yep go on if i was ecc uh llc um and i had a client 
who maybe had political aspirations and wanted to push a particular narrative. And the client said to me, hey, look, here's my stance on this modern day topic. Here's my manifestly morally wrong stance on this topic. How can I convey it without, A, me directly saying it, but in a way that makes it seem like I've got the support of the people and that what I'm saying isn't some freakish view, but actually it's just what people are actually thinking. If I'm evil communicators company LLC, I'll go, okay, you know what you should do? Get a bunch of regular Joes to post about it. Get a bunch of normal people to spread these opinions around in like non-confrontational spaces, like a neighborhood Facebook group or like your aunt's comments or the slash aha slash Auckland subreddit. And just test the waters with that. And I would go, okay, you know what? Start slow. Just be like, hey, ever thought it's weird how insert crazy view here, you know, just start small. And then after a week or so or two weeks of that, do some A-B testing, you know, make your own post for a change. Be like, hey, I've noticed a trend of these types of comments. What do you wider New Zealanders think about this insert insane topic here? And then I would get a bunch of other people that I'd also put on my payroll to jump into that thread and comment, you're so right, OP. That's awesome. I've noticed this too. It's that kind of thing. And I think it's really all about normalizing, communicating about these ideas that are otherwise morally repugnant. And to to normalize these ideas, you need a large group of people. They don't have to be like accepted or even like, you don't have to put like a face to a name because in an online world, that stuff becomes increasingly irrelevant. I feel like if you want to have an insane viewpoint and you want to feel like you want to appear like you're justified in having it, what you need is the public opinion to be on your side. And in this day and age, we know that people can manufacture that. So if I'm a comms company and my client is evil and they go, how do I normalize my evil message? That's what I would do. I would pay for a very effective social media based astroturfing campaign which definitely people have already done, I'm sure, in the US and the UK and still do right now in Australia and New Zealand. Because it's obvious, even in Kyle's own replies. Um, we no, see, don't bring up my replies. <laughs> we see bots. We see bots say the exact same thing. It doesn't matter who you block or how often you block them. People will say the same stuff in the exact same phrasing and the same words to Kyle, to the main account, to people that have even commented on Kyle's thread or in any other sort of left-wing thread. Like, these are not individual people plugged into one hive mind having like coordinated thoughts and tweet them independently. This is a coordinated astrotopping campaign organized by a company or a person. It's a concerted effort. So sort of conspiracy. The term that I use for that is inauthentic behavior is I think a really important term for people to start using. And I think this also speaks to digital literacy and critical thinking, all of which are things that we have some pretty big gaps around. I actually, I possibly am being a little bit too naive or hopeful here, but I do wonder if the sheer unpleasantness of using the internet at the moment (laughs) kind of helps because, you know, it is impossible to use Google nowadays. You know, the first five or six search results that you get when you put something in are sponsored and usually only vaguely related to what your search term actually was. Mm-hmm. Most social media platforms are filled with spam and bots. You know, you say something about a key, a certain keyword that then triggers those bots and you have, you know, screeds and screeds and screeds of people saying vaguely racist, vaguely transphobic things interspersed with people asking you to DM them 
foot photos or, you know, like pussy in bio or whatever. Right, you know, I prefer those ones, honestly, because yeah, you're like, well, that's clearly, like, not real. You're clearly, yeah, but you've got to wonder, like, how how many years of this does your average, you know, middle-aged, middle-class, white, you know, New Zealand internet user have to put up with before they're like, man, the internet just kind of sucks. And nowadays when I say something, it's going to have a whole bunch of replies and some of them are going to be really unhinged and start to see that white noise as exactly that, that spam as exactly that. And, you know, in the same way that we would go, well, that's not real to someone saying pussy and bio, we would go, oh, well, that's not real to the four people who have used the exact same hateful talking points, right? I don't think we're quite there yet. I think if you are a non-evil social media or communications company or even just the marketing team for a brand or a government agency or whatever, and you get 60 responses and, you know, 45 to 50 of them are insane, then that makes you question whether you've said the wrong thing. Uh, and at its worst, whether it was even worth saying full stop or having a social media presence is even worth it full stop, which obviously is really dangerous because then we start to stop communicating and that chilling effect, that silencing effect really takes hold. So I guess my hope is that as the internet becomes grosser, we also understand <laughs> what comes with it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's a horrible thought, man. I'm seeing, I'm seeing, and I'm sure you both of you are as well, seeing it happen in real time. Um, mm. You know, there was this reasonably large exodus uh, within the New Zealand Pole space to Blue Sky. And it's like, and New Zealand Pole is quite a, on the progressive side, and even like moving into like some of the, and I'm going to, someone's going to get me for this. Um, mm -hmm. But even for the more like uh, compassionate conservative folks, um, such as they are, they didn't want to deal with what was happening among, like people in that space and they just left. Um, so many people shut their accounts down and NZ Poll is just like, it is a really interesting test case for this kind of stuff because it's so, it is quite tight knit as, as far as such things go, as far as online kind of communities go. And everyone was like sharing uh, invite codes. Um, they had like invite code centralization people who would like, gather people's codes and give them out to people because everyone just wanted it off so bad. Some of us have stayed around on Twitter and uh, it's fine. Some of us just pop in every two or three days and post <laughs> photos of cooking and then leave. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the thing, right? I think you're right. Like it has become so gross. And alongside that, I think you're absolutely correct to say, you know, the other side of that, even if you're not, oh, well, I'm convinced by all these clearly real people, is to just shut down, is to stop communicating. Um, and this brings me to, like, I guess a key point that I think needs to be made around the way that social media exists and interacts and how we interact with it. And it's this idea that it has become the public square in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, people say that to in more convincing ways or, or not. Um, you know, some people make a lot more of it uh, than I think it is the case. You know, we actually do have public spaces uh, to interact in as well. But a lot of like political discussion, especially, um, and I think particularly in New Zealand, um, among a particular subset of hyper-engaged uh, human beings do does happen online. And a lot of it was happening on Twitter. Um, like a really significant amount, a frighteningly significant amount. Um, and so it made it really, 
it really primed it, this kind of, uh, what, evil communications company, LLC strategy, in a way that I don't think people expected it to eventuate. And without that digital literacy, as you were saying, Nicole, people were just like, like sideswiped by it. They just, they didn't know what, what had happened. Suddenly, I think beginning of last year, <clears throat> I was getting maybe 100 people commenting on um, election posts. Um, uh, people is in the quotes. I was you just were getting... getting hundreds of 14-year-old Russian. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, you know, no, I, I don't think they're Russian necessarily. Uh, whoever is um, charging the least amount of money, right? Yes, yeah. Um, but there's also a really coordinated group of people that are clearly within New Zealand. And because they, they just have the knowledge around those things and they're using particularly New Zealand phrasing. And and so sometimes the extent where you're like, this is the same person a hundred times um, that I've blocked. <laughs> but how do you, you know, we're, we're, you know, we've obviously, we've gone through this and we've said, okay, this is how it is. This is why these things have happened. Um, it, it is bad. I think a lot of people knew what was coming as well, if they were already in this space. I remember... How long? How long have I known you, Jenny? Sorry, like seven, <laughs> seven years, seven years ish. Yeah, um, seven years. Around the time that we were both doing um, covering esports stuff. Sorry to bring that up. Uh, there was a uh, what do you call it? A keynote address by this game designer called Raf Costa mm. um, about yeah. social media and social gaming platforms. He was saying, "Look, there's some bad shit coming." We have seen it all because, it, like, working in these massive multiplayer online games where people can be anonymous and get very close to people because they become like a uh, like a replacement for in real life social interaction, and then horrible shit happens. And some of the stories he has in this address are just. Like even even now, even in the current state, when we you know we have like libs of TikTok and like some really horrible like real life uh, examples of sarcastic terrorism being driven by like huge social media apparatus. That stuff, on some level, it's more understandable for why it happened than some of the stuff that Raf Costa talks about. Of of like a somewhat on a somewhat lighter note, um, I guess. They had like this term, which was time till penis um, for any new game uh, that they had launched and they were doing the social kind of moderation for. And it was how long it would take for people in the game to use the game uh, assets to draw a penis somewhere, which is like. God bless yeah. us. Traditions are important. Right. Like it's not. Oh, for the old days, you know, but you had to figure it out of fences or like um, everyone would stand there, like get a whole bunch of people, um, avatars standing in a circle or something and making a penis shape. But it was like a, it was a social media like ticker that they had um, on each of their projects um, that was generally like a good indicator of how well they were able to moderate um, and how well, they've been able to predict the kind of behaviors that were going to uh, show up uh, in the social space they created. And oh yeah, all the warning signs were there and there were potential ways to to moderate for them. And it's maybe it's, it's become so much worse. I think it's, I think part of the difficulty is that as we've mentioned, all the issues with 
being literate around tech and digital online and stuff, it's become increasingly difficult, I think, to realize, unless you're interacting with a bot all the time, that an account that has a human's face and a human's name and not just like a string of numbers is actually a bot and not a person. And I think that Twitter potentially just as maybe this is just I'm just like a, this is my unscientific opinion as someone who has used Twitter for a long time. I remember when I first got on it, I came from Live Journal, right? And I went onto Twitter and I was like, here's a bunch of humans. I'm talking to a bunch of humans that I know. And I rarely ever ventured outside of my immediate community that I knew from Life Journal. We were just people being people online on Twitter. And it was just like we just shifted where we were organized from Life Journal onto Twitter, but we were just people doing people things. And I remember the first time I ever encountered like a bot or like an inauthentic interaction in my immediate social circle was around the, the Gamergate times, I would say. Before that, you could almost, I want to say, one-to-one -one verify that someone that you were tweeting with was a real person. But the minute we started, I guess the minute we saw those harassment campaigns become more organized, people start to employ things like bots back, in, back from those days until now, that's when the waters really got muddied. And I can see why the average Twitter user might not actually be able to detect when they're being talked to by a bot and when they're being talked to by a concerned Pākehā citizen of New Zealand expressing some questionable views around uh, the genocide. You know what I mean? Like, I think that has been the most worrying thing to watch happen. And now that Blue Sky has opened its doors to everyone, like, I think, what, within 24 hours of that happening, I saw some outrageous stuff on there, like, just some, like, horrific, like, Twitter-level, like, early Twitter days-level stuff on Blue Sky. And I feel like even though Blue Sky is supposed to be better at moderating, it actually isn't. And I kind of worry that we are just bringing the same bot problem over from Twitter onto Blue Sky. We're just shifting where stuff is organised now. And that we are just unable as a group to effectively detect when we're having these inauthentic responses. And so by and large, they're going to get through and be transplanted from one medium to another, just ad nauseum, basically, for as long as this course as a thing actually exists. And that I'm really worried about, even though I'm someone that I consider, I consider myself to be reasonably literate digitally, but I work with so many people who are just not. And unfortunately... <laughs> These people occupy reasonably influential positions in the corporate world and are so within New Zealand. And so in my mind, if these people are so easily hoodwinked and they are they make and they're considered decision makers within our local apparatus, that is worrying to me. Right? Like how can we educate these people in a way that they are receptive to? Because I feel like that subset of person is not receptive to being educated but they're also the ones that are in need of it the most. Like the ones that are falling prey to disinformation are our decision makers. The ones who are also choosing to spread disinformation are unfortunately other decision makers. And that's like the issue that we have here. I think uniquely, at least right now, it's just like, it's a cesspool. It's a cesspool. It's terrible. Yeah, I think I have to hope that the tech kind of growth for growth's sake ethos that's really dominated in the last few years and 
I think has directly led to the grossness of all user interfaces. Even Instagram is really hard to use now, you know, in order to see the things that you actually want to see, you have to scroll through dozens and dozens of ads and loud auto playing videos and all sorts of stuff, you know. And I think, you know, we kind of have to, as consumers, be a little bit cleverer about what platforms we custom and what, I guess, the sort of advertisers that we see on that platform, what standards we hold them to. So that was something that was really interesting around Twitter, you know, Mm. advertisers deciding actually, hang on, we don't want to be associated with, you know, 50 bot replies about porn necessarily, you know. Um, And I think that's really, that stuff is really powerful if we're going to lean into capitalism, uh, (laughs) you know. Yeah, if we're going to lean into sort of, you know, capitalist solutions to to capitalist problems, then actually, you know, putting our money where our mouth is and taking our custom elsewhere is really important. But I also think, you know, partly it is when we are talking about systems like capitalism and tech growth for growth's sake, it's kind of inevitable, actually, that if you do have platforms that only value advertising-driven revenue, you are going to start at some point valuing quality less and less in, you know, in, in preference for eyes on. And I think, you know, if you were to ask Elon Musk how he was feeling about his Twitter n- numbers at the moment because of that complete rollback of any of the very thin barriers to an authentic behaviour that's been happening, it now looks like he has made the place more popular than ever. And we know that's not true because we're real human beings who can see that there. But I think, you know, we don't have that kind of third place in New Zealand politics anymore that we did have on on Twitter with the NZ poll, as you mentioned, Kyle. I don't know that it is blue sky. I don't know. Um, What I've noticed is people being kind of gently grieving and not having the words for it, which I find really interesting. There was a farewell panel in Auckland. It was like farewelling the bird or burying the bird or something like that. Um, You know, late last year, that was basically a whole bunch of old Twitter weirdos from NZ (laughs) Poll, you know, and I I, I include myself in that. I wasn't there for it, but, you know, these these are my people. Basically just getting together being like, man, this place used to be really cool and now it's gone. And I guess I'd like to see us use that grief to make sure that whatever platforms we do custom have uh, built in kind of, I guess, buttons that reflect that we know that this happens now and that this happens particularly because of algorithms, particularly because of growth models. How do we make sure that that is something that we prioritise wherever we go? And the answer is usually that it's actually the tech companies that have those levers and those buttons, right? It's not us as consumers necessarily. But there's also a whole bunch of stuff around regulation and consequence, you know, um, Every now and again, one of those big tech companies has to pay a fine to a government because they've done something very illegal, you know. (laughs) Uh, I don't think it really matters. It's just kind of the cost of doing business. Mm. But you've got to wonder whether those techniques are being employed in the way that they actually best could be. In New Zealand, we do have multiple pieces of legislation that sort of fit together to form theoretically some kind of shield to dangerous speech and harmful online interactions and targeting every now and again we talk about how we need to reinvent those 
I would argue that we're not even using the ones that we have to hand appropriately. And it would be really great to just actually try and look at the efficacy of the legislation that we currently have if it was being operated properly rather than let's rewrite some new laws every, you know, five years. Um, But yeah, I think in New Zealand, we have the smallness, I guess, and the slight distance from all of the growth stuff that's happening globally to be able to have a small heads up about where stuff is heading. And I think we need to use that quite wisely. Yeah, I agree. I think like that distance is is rapidly shortening though. You know, we've gone straight from what happened with The Voice in Australia to having this um, Tetility referendum uh, stuff occurring and, and running exactly the same lines. And as soon as uh, a number of us saw the stuff happening in Australia. We were like, hey, it's coming to New Zealand. And then politicians somehow just weren't prepared uh, by and large. Um, that's not obviously true of everyone. But what's really interesting is that, you know, we're talking about the ways in which these spaces are almost destined to become horrible. Um, we're all still here in some respect because, you know, there's still communications apparatus. And even if we all chose to opt out, as Jenny was saying, like that doesn't really matter because that doesn't mean the people who are being impacted by it in powerful roles are going to opt out as well. <laughs> it's I think there's slightly more power in that though, in that decision makers like to know where other people where their people are. Mm. So, you know, NZ poll was fascinating in that it was not representative of New Zealand kind of political views. It was far more progressive, far more left wing than your average group of Kiwis or whatever. But politicians and decision makers knew that that was a key group because they were very politically literate, really switched on and usually quite kind of engaged in that stuff. And if those people keep disappearing after, you know, they land somewhere and then a whole bunch, a swarm of inauthentic activity follows them, then I think you have to hope that decision makers will be at least looking to see where the real humans land. There was this really interesting video, I think it just came out in the last couple of days, and it's a US rep, I think, uh, having to talk to some of the people who have attached to his rhetoric and just having this kind of dawning look on his face going like, oh, fuck, like these people don't believe in institutions at all anymore. Yeah, it started out with like, oh, yeah, we need to vote these people out. And then they, his his supporters were like, what do you mean? Like, we're not going to vote. Everyone has to go. And the guy's like, oh, no, but then what happens? You have a vote, right? And they're like, no, we just get people and put them in. And I think even for though for people like that uh, US um, political rep, even for them, they might be starting to get a realization of what they've created. Some of them won't give a shit. I, I want to be clear about that. But some of them do have like friends and family and communities that are going to be directly impacted uh, should everything just fall the fuck over. And so I'm hopeful that fear plays a part there. Yeah, I always find it interesting when you see politicians actively courting votes from people who don't believe in democracy. Uh, and, you know, that kind of the perceived group of elites, shadowy elite, you know, shadowy elites that supposedly run all countries, sort of that rhetoric falls away when they find a politician that they like. They're like, this is our guy on the inside. Yeah, this is our billionaire. Yeah, and it's like this This person has been a politician for, yeah, like decades and decades and decades. What do you think is going on here? And it's, you know, again, that links back to that idea of like, I'm sure you've probably heard me talk or post about this ad nauseum, but most 
conspiracies have a seed of truth to them, right? So the idea that there are systems that benefit elites that don't benefit your average person, the the seed of that, (laughs) absolutely correct, right? It's more than a seed in that case. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's fascinating that they land on, you know, and the the answer to this is that we punch down on people who are even more marginalized than us, you know? Um, And that's a rhetoric that I think you know, when we talk about what the left and what progressive communicators, the tasks that we have ahead of us and the challenges that we have to overcome, I think being able to storytell about what progressive issues actually mean for your average everyday person is something that we don't have nailed, we really need to work on. And every single time we fail to kind of have a, you know, we will fight for you if you will fight for us kind of solidarity rhetoric, we lose people who are looking for solidarity and looking for Critically, I think a a recognition of their struggle. So even if you are in the middle of the sandwich of capitalism or, you know, colonialism at the moment, you are still struggling, you know, you are still being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And we know that the cost of living crisis is impacting everyone. We know that people have lost a lot of their kind of community connections through not just COVID, through lots of things before that, you know. I really don't like the term disenfranchised when it applies to groups of, you know, mostly white, angry men. But, you know, when people are feeling isolated and feeling like things have not been going right for them and they can't put a finger on why, it often feels like the right has a really lovely black and white clean answer for that. And the left has it's complicated TM, you know? (laughs) And, you know, if you're trying to pick between those two rhetorics, I can sometimes see why people, uninformed people would pick the former, right? So our our challenge is how we appeal to, you know, whether it's on social media platforms or outside of them, how we appeal to people who are staring down the, who are sitting on that fence. Yeah, I think it's it's really difficult for the left as well. And again, these these are known problems, right? Um, when we tend towards, okay, the nuance um, is this, uh, because it allows that fracturing, right? Um, And it allows inauthentic behaviours to run pretty rife. And, you know, this may may show up as like, oh, but what about this group? You know, like, why aren't you talking about this? And you you see this like every day on Twitter. um, If you post about any specific group of people, someone will show up, I say someone, but who knows what it is. Uh, saying, oh, I see you're posting about this, but you haven't posted about this in the last 24 hours. Tell me about that. Um, like actively trying to create these fracture lines because the the progressive message or the, the left-wing uh, strategy around solidarity hasn't been bedded in since maybe 100 years ago. Uh, we're starting to see some changes to that um, in union movements in the UK and the US uh, and in Scandinavia now as well across Europe. Um but we've got a long way to go, and especially when it comes to social media stuff, because the way in which people have retreated to their specific communities out of a sense of safety, you know, completely fair, means that they can also be very easy to target with this stuff. And the evil communications company knows that. Uh, and I don't know. The, the, I guess the other side of that as well is that the left has been very... And maybe I'd say particularly in New Zealand, um, it's been very hesitant to dip its toe into populism in any form. Uh, It's become a very bad word. 
usually tied to kind of like Waitakere man or like uh, other kind of racist stereotypes. Um, like if you're not bashing immigrants, you're not being populist kind of thing. But positions are shifting on a whole bunch of like quite progressive economic policy. There's a whole bunch of stuff out there um, that that could be grabbed onto and 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 used in that way. And I I wish the left as a, a wider grouping was willing to do that. In terms of the current state of affairs, though, uh, you know, we have these, uh, a wish list of perhaps what we would hope to see from leaders or institutions in this space. Um, as far as the tech companies go and capital goes, they don't, they're not going to do it. You know, they're, <laughs> they're not going to come to our rescue on this. They're not going to give us those moderation tools. Uh, they're likely to strip more away. They're very easily able to pivot to claims about free speech you know, in bad faith to um, justify what they're doing. Uh, the political landscape is fractured. Uh, community is kind of at one of its worst stages <laughs> in a long time. The advice I always give to politicians and media in particular, who, who are kind of at the forefront of a lot of the stuff of like the abuse, is just to turn the comments off and turn off replies for people that you don't follow. But that doesn't, you know, that's just like a, understanding of what the environment is and that it's not going to change and using stop gaps. What, as a, as a whole, uh, as, a set, as a set of institutions uh, for people who are in leadership and decision-making positions, what should they be doing beyond just protecting themselves? Uh, because that seems like where I end up a lot of the time is like, no, just stop communicating with people online, which has its own serious issues. I kind of think that is the answer sometimes. It's not the end of the answer because online is important and it has become a, um, you know, we can't undo the fact that that is now our one of, if not our primary kind of forms of communication, especially from state apparatus, comms channels and stuff. You know, you need to be able to go online and find out what's happening, ranging from when your rubbish is getting picked up or whether it's glass or, you know, plastics recycling right through to, you know, um, information about policies and upcoming elections and stuff, right? Right through, to, also just to engage with your people and have all of that kind of lovely community building stuff. But I think you phrased it as like, what's the wish list for decision makers and organisations? And I actually think I spend a lot of time talking about how organisations can build resilience to disinformation and those kind of tools and strategies. I think for a change of pace, I would say that the wish list is not on some level just for decision makers, it's for communities and for people. And so, it, you know, to reframe the question, it's like, what's the wish list for our communities and our neighbourhoods and our, you know, friends in Fano? And it's sort of like log off, actually. <laughs> I know that sounds overly simple, but we retreated, we've retreated in the last three or four years. And some of that has been really understandable. And at the moment, if you are unwell or immunocompromised, you know, the idea of going and, you know, hanging out with, with people and stuff like that isn't cut and dry. And so I'm not trying to suggest that it is, but I think for people who have um, started spending more time in their own bubbles over the, for, for very good reasons over the last few years. I think that the call to action is to, however you can, safely expand your networks and your horizons. Something that I always find really funny, I don't know whether this is just me, but I always get like 
prepper nonsense targeted to me in advertising through the algorithm. I always get like, yeah, I don't know why. I think it's because I'm a gardener, (laughs) but I get like, you know, 101 (laughs) off-grid, you know, survival projects that you can do or whatever. And I always think like the number one preparedness or survival thing that you can actually do is go and talk to your neighbors (laughs) and have them know you and you know them and maybe they have your cell phone in case they see something weird going on you know um and I think you know people who have experienced natural disasters I hear a lot from friends who survived the Christchurch quakes that's like no the thing that got us through was that you know the neighbors organized someone had a generator someone else was doing the cooking someone else was saying you can use our bathroom whatever all of that kind of you know that real connective stuff that happened online with COVID. A lot of people were organizing isolation kind of, you know, care parcel drops and stuff like that. So we know we can do it both on and offline. And I think now that we see that divide growing between kind of people and perspectives, I think that the impetus is on us as leftists, as progressives to get out there and connect with people that don't look like us or act like us or hold the same beliefs as us. And the social cohesion benefit is that when people get served something through that algorithm that dehumanizes a person or an idea that is foreign to them, maybe they have more points of reference for that because they, you know, are living in a slightly more connected neighborhood or community. And it sounds overly simple, but it, it truly does make the world of difference, I think. Yeah, I think there's an important um, point within that as well, which is one of the other goals of these kind of behaviors online is to make us think that everyone else is like out to get us, right? Um, is to drive fear and, and make you think that... Um, you don't have anything in common with the people around you. But by and large, uh, and you know, you see this in polling all the time, people are shifting progressive, like regardless of what we're seeing in the media and in politics, people want to tax the wealthy. They, they don't want inequality. They want more funding for schools and, um, and for healthcare. Um, they don't want our rivers to be polluted. They no. want to be able to swim in all of that stuff. Absolutely. But most people share similar human values to each other. And yeah, I think the online experience has intentionally uh, tried to drive people away from that understanding. So I think you're absolutely right. benefits from us being frightened of each other. And disinformation grows in that gap between connection. And so when we think about the fact that we are largely as a society, especially in Aotearoa, starting to trend progressive, I'm not worried that, you know, people who are bigoted and hateful and believe in white supremacy, I'm not truly worried that they will win the battle for hearts and minds because clearly they are, you know, awful people with terrible ideas. I'm worried about that gap that grows between them and the schism between the people who want more progressive outcomes and things like, you know, mana motohake and people who have (laughs) are a minority but who have come to truly believe in a splintered reality. And that gap is the bit that I think should scare leftists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say um, less from like a less from like a per, less from like an individual activist perspective, maybe less from a leftist perspective, but more from maybe like a institutions and groups perspective. There is so much of modern advertising is just like stuff that is being pushed 
by groups that are participating in this information. Like I cannot tell you how many sponsored posts and searches and dynamic ads and even like LinkedIn collateral um, is being like paid for by people that have like an awful and morally repugnant agenda. And maybe this is just because I work in advertising, um, but I do genuinely think that if you are an institution and you are a community group, I think that you need to be putting something out there in that stream to combat the awful shit that is online. Like, I can't name organizations because NDA stuff, but we work with some groups recently where we were trying to reach, um, I would say, underprivileged groups in South Auckland, for example, like specifically. And what you can do with advertising and targeting is incredibly like Brave New World, but also incredibly useful. And we were able to successfully get a bunch of informational resources about medical health and healthcare out to very specific groups of people that were actually avoiding mainstream online spaces. Like these people didn't want to participate in Reddit or really in Instagram, but they were older people who might've been on Facebook. And we were like, well, how do we, if we target these people by age, we're going to get a bunch of racist white men in the pool as well that don't care about what we have to say about healthcare. But if we want to reach certain groups specifically, we can target groups uh, and interests on Meta or Facebook, like, well, that might go to this particular church or people that might participate in this particular social activity. So like you can reach groups that need your messaging and need that messaging urgently. And I can't stress enough how when we talk to these participants in the survey that we did for this advertising drive, these people were so grateful that they received this information because they had said around them, they had people dropping flies into their mailboxes being like, oh, you know, like this three river stuff is bullshit, blah, blah, blah. Or like Maori healthcare, that's terrible. Like, you know, just like rampant, awful stuff that is happening in the world around you. And I feel if you are an organization that has a digital space and has a digital presence, I think you have almost, if you have, uh, if you're even like a public facing company of any sort of kind, I think you actually have a duty to combat this stuff because you have the funds and resources to do so. And you should be targeting people that you know need your services urgently. And you should be targeting them with information. Like I'm not saying push your products or push your brand messaging out to these people, but a lot of public service orgs just, I think, don't do enough in the digital online space to actually just have information out there for the average New Zealander. And that I think is what creates that gap that Nicole is talking about. It's just people that are not easily reached by mainstream media at all just can't live in online darkness because they will still go, they will still be online in some dark space somewhere. It can't just be a media blackout for them. If they're not being reached or they distrust MSM, that's completely fine. But I think we as the left have a duty to reach them and left institutions and orgs and companies should be carrying out that duty actively. Well, we know that the opposing side is also using pixel tracking and targeted advertising and micro audiences, right? So they are, you know, you are able to control kind of to some degree the the news feed of of people through, mm. you know, if you're clever enough and using pixels and stuff. And I think, you know, for leftist organisations, I don't know, you know, what the answer is in regards to sort of 
targeting and, and using the algorithm to our advantage. I think that there's probably some incredible tech nerds that would have lots and lots of takes on that. <laughs> and I really like your point of view of like, actually, we've got the responsibility to put good information out there. I guess I would say that one of the key tactics of disinformation is to just pollute the whole info yeah. kind of ecosystem. Yeah. And so then it becomes really hard for your average person to tell the difference between, you know, good sources of information and bad. And that's something that we really need to look into, I think. Yeah, I think that, like it's a really key point here. And yeah, I absolutely agree with what you were saying, Jenny, around the responsibility of institutions. And just speaking to what you said, Nicole, around uh, what people can trust, one of the few currencies that some of our big public institutions have left is the trust, like generational trust um, among their constituents. Just please use it. Like there's this, I, I don't think it's New Zealand Labour Party in particular, it's like the uh, left of centre Western democracy condition, right? Which is we'll just open our arms and they'll come to us. Who else are they going to vote for is like uh, one way that it is sometimes expressed. Um, and you see it with uh, the Democratic Party very, very starkly right now around Gaza. Um, you see it in the UK uh, because the Tories are just that bad uh, that Labour has maybe moved further right than the Conservative Party on several key policy um, issues because they just, they just must. They just must come and vote for us. And the Labour Party here as well is is somewhat uh, kind of not averse to to that approach, but we're not in that age anymore. You know, we're we're not in a position where you can just put stuff online and it can be the truth, and people are going to come and find it um, and say, "Oh yes, of course, I'm voting for you," or "I'm going to go and do that thing now." We're we're so far past that, and that's why astroturfing works. It's why uh, right-wing parties can just lie and lie and lie and the media just picks it up um, and prints it because there is a set of responsibilities and tasks that progressive haven't effectively picked up yet. I guess that- I think we're still overly reliant on kind of party politics and state interventions mm -hmm. in a way that I think is proven time and time again to be um, unearned trust. And I think- you know, an organisation that I've worked with a little bit through the disinformation project, um, I spoke at their last couple of conferences as Citizens Advice Bureau, who are truly on the front line of that disconnect and that kind of splintered reality that I was talking about. And that is citizen-led, you know, trusted source of, of impartial information, mostly staffed by volunteers who are retired and have a lot of kind of time and knowledge and passion for their communities. And it runs on the smell of an oily rag. We know that in Auckland, your mayor decided that a fun thing to do would be to turn off their funding source. Just, you know, why not? Um, and so, you know, when we're kind of staring down the barrel of all of these challenges, I often think about the fact that we're always looking for new solutions when often there are existing resources there. And I'm a huge fan of not reinventing the wheel. Yeah. And it's really sad when you're talking to a group of people who are doing the most incredible kind of coalface work with disenfranchised folks and people who are you know, trying to figure out how to renew their license, how to whatever, you know, any of that kind of basic quality information stuff. And they're going, you know, what do we do? How can we be better? And the answer is 
actually what you do is you keep doing your job because you do it really well and you're already established and you already have these systems. The answer is not how you do this better. The answer is how does the state resource you to keep doing the expert work that you are already doing? Yeah, something I often say is you give, if we gave enough funding to community law, uh, civil advice bureau and libraries, that would solve most of these problems um, about like, oh, where's democracy going? Or like, why can no one trust information? Yeah, I mean, just resource of things that would solve that and have been trying to solve that for a long time already. I guess that's, it's indicative that the far right in particular goes after these exact institutions, right? Big time. And I think when we, if we remove it from a social issue, not that environmental issues aren't also social, but you know, something that came out in Wellington, so I'm a Wellingtonian, and last year there was an announcement that all of the native birds in the region had moved out of the most critically endangered category. So that doesn't mean that there's not still ones that really need some help, but it means that, you know, mm -hmm. on the whole, everything had kind of shifted out of the most dangerous zone in terms of conservation. And if you zoom out, you can see that that is truly kind of community-led work and action in that diverse way where it has input from kind of state and government around funding for reforestation and riparian planting and cleaning up waterways. But it's also literally just your dad with some rat traps in his garden and, you know, some people who have decided that they're going to go and clean up the stream um, and plant some trees that, you know, feed tui or whatever. And after years and years and years of all of that kind of diverse coming together big and little, you see the impact that it has on the whenua. And I think, you know, I, I think we can apply that to social issues as well. And I think we can look at the fact that all of the people that are putting rat traps in their yard and, you know, planting harakeke along their their awa, they probably don't all vote for the same political parties, right? <laughs> um, but they have a shared value around you know, birds and, you know, the the beauty of Wellington and all of that kind of stuff. And it's not connected to any one narrative or any one astroturfing anything. It's just this kind of values-based organic change. And I think we can lean into that and lean out of rel being reliant on people who are ultimately looking to court swing voters and popularism and stuff like that. I think, you know, if, if we're going to sort of end on a happy note, I would say that there are great examples of best practice community-led stuff happening. We may be just not looking in the right places. And there's a fantastic place to tie it up. Thank you so much for joining us, Nicole. Yeah. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. And thank you to my co-host, Ginny. Thanks for coming along. No problem. That's been another episode of One of 200. Share it around. I think we had some really good conversations there. Maybe you know people who aren't aware of some of the stuff or you feel like it should be articulated to them. Maybe there's some good ideas here that you feel you should put in front of your political representatives. Feel free to send them a link. Um, maybe you're listening to this, politicians um, or people with decision-making power. Please take action in the ways that we've suggested because we're correct. And you can trust us because we're a trustworthy institution. Hi, oh. <laughs> we'll be back on the weekend for current events. We'll catch you then. Pay with
good intentions And I'll admit that I'm at a loss for what to say When they quote this as a cost we ought to stay Cause I live amongst the people every day And this vindictive 